three and two the count. And they'll all be running. Ripken, the possible tying run, of course. And if Royals hit one in between them now, Cal might be able to score with this running start. There they go. And the pinch. Swinging a long drive to left center field. It is gone! Hot ribs! And the Orioles have won it! to do with uh, the first exploding scoreboard. Where did you get the idea for that? That was from a play by the fellow by the name of Soroyan. And the uh, show of time of your life, if you remember, there was a sitting in the back of the saloon. Every once in a while, a guy would come up and get another roll of nickels, and he'd go back and play pinball game. And nothing happened, and nothing happened. But you knew, what is there? there's some point to this. And just before the final curtain, he hits the jackpot and everything happened. The whole board exploded. The flags came up. It played Dixie. And I thought, what a wonderful idea. Because that emphasizes the importance of home. Home runs really, basically, are strangely enough, except for the result, are dull. Because it happens so fast. It isn't like a triple with a basis pool with everybody running and keep running. It's just boom and it's gone. So I thought, ah, we'll try and make this more dramatic. But it was the forerunner of what's happened. But as in many cases, the forerunner is fine, I think. But when you get this so highly developed uh, that they come from Japan, Germany, wherever, to try and peddle them, each one peddles more, and each time you peddle more, it becomes less important, and it diminishes rather than increases. The only thing is I didn't dream that I would create, a, once again, a monster like Dr. Frankenstein that would try and usurp the ball game. Because, you see, with all the instant replays and all these things, people forget to watch the game because they know we can see that. Where do you activate the fireworks when somebody hits a home run? Well, the switch is just up on the wall over my right shoulder. When we're sure the home run is hit, we'll flip the switch and automatically it'll fire the fireworks.
Jake the Snake Robinson, I'm coming out of West Baltimore, Charm City, bitch, half man, half podcast machine, back in the Captain Kirk chair, shields down, photons up, prepare to engage on this week's digital audio program that I call Backwards K-Pod, where we collect ballplayers and their stories. What's cracking, Seamheads? What's juicy? And for the first time in my seven-year career as a digital content creator, whether that entails my podcast or video career, I'm finally doing a show out of my hometown, Baltimore, where the story all begins. And if I'm being honest, I, I do. I love being here, reconnecting with old friends, family, but... I also have a feeling of, you know, this utter loneliness and rage when I come home sometimes. The, the last 12 years I lived in Baltimore, it was an era of mass confusion and a reckless lifestyle. I was truly a lost soul. And folks, it got to a point where I was going to either end up a statistic of the prison system or I was going to wind up dead. Sometimes I forget that when I'm living that salt life down in South Kakalaka. And you know the old adage, to get the grass is always green on the other side until you get to the other side. And again, don't get me wrong, I love seeing my fam, hanging out with my friends that I haven't seen in years, getting ready to drop this show, head out to the yard to watch the O's and the Sox. But deep down inside, I know I don't belong here anymore. There's a real disconnect here. I'm, I'm having fun. I really am. The city will always be in my DNA. But I'm spoiled. I'm a Southern Beach Boy now. Hello, everybody. Jake the Snake Robbins here. Uh, I got your hookup. Holler if you hear me. I'm spending this week in my hometown. I just had to come home and watch Rockstar with my own two eyes, you know? I'm looking forward to putting this show together, heading out to the yard, catch some Major League ball. Orioles were down 4 to nothing last night in the second, but came back to win 5-4. A great game for my return back to Camden. In 12 years. But look. Just because I'm on vacation. It doesn't mean I'm going to leave you guys hanging. I'm on vacation. Researching. Writing. Working on pods. Because quite frankly. I I love you guys. The best baseball podcast audience. A fellow like me could ever ask for. And that's why. I'm never going to charge you for the baseball content here. Backwards K-Pod. No Patreon. No Twitch. No pay to play. Crowd surfing. Sourcing. I'm just going to keep coming through. Every Tuesday. With that free baseball smoke. And I'm going to keep it consistent like my boy Steady Eddie Murray, baby. I do want to get this show on the road this week as we're going to do a throwback stadium show. We haven't done one of these in a while. I believe our last throwback crib was the Polo Grounds in New York City. And that was back in September. So I'm excited to add Comiskey Park to our collection so, if I can clear this platform, guys, I see the catcher's ready to come down. That a boy short. Drop that glove, son. I'm going to call all aboard as we set our time travel choo-choo for South Chicago, 1910, where one of the game's most defining structures is about to change the game of baseball forever. If you ever decided to let your ace pitcher design a ballpark, 
you can be 1,000% sure it will be a pitcher's park in the end. And that's what Comiskey was. A good, you know, a spacious baseball palace that extended the dead ball era for decades. As the second city's second baseball team, the White Sox experienced light-hitting lineups, scandal-ridden drama, scoreboard and disco record explosions, and a sometimes unruly and aggressive South Chicago fan base as opposed to the self-professed, sophisticated, and bougie Northside Cubs fans. When it was first completed, she was called the greatest baseball palace in the world. But the history of Comiskey Park is ingrained with as much infamy as Heroism, as well as indelible moments that had absolutely zero to do with the White Sox winning or losing games. Capricious, unpredictability reigned supreme at Comiskey. The 1919 highly favored White Sox are upset by the Cincinnati Reds and the World Series leading to the banning of eight players in their role in the series fix. We talked about that and the uh, the Black Sox scandal show. And let's not forget the 1990 White Sox who went hitless in a game and still managed to win that game four to nothing, proving that they were hitless wonders to the very end. Overall, the White Sox won over 400 games more than they lost at Comiskey. But the Chips were always hard to collect. In eight decades of baseball, the White Sox won three AL pennants and a world championship. In 1917, even without the on-the-field dominance, there was rarely a dull moment at the yard. There were three All-Star games, including the very first one in 1933, as well as the classic 50 years later that saw Fred Lynn hit that grand slam dong of Atlee Hammaker. The first one in All-Star history. There were also numerous Negro Leagues games. 27 Negro League All-Star games played in the house that Commie built. In 1962, boxer Sonny Liston puts pretty pretty boy Floyd Patterson on his ass at Comiskey. In 1947, the Chicago Cardinals won an NFL championship at Comiskey. Over 70 years and two relocations later, the Arizona Cardinals have failed to accomplish that feat again. In fact, with the advent and the rise of the automobile, Comiskey Park even hosted Auto Polo. That's right. I said Auto Polo, you freaks. Think Polo, but with cars, dude. <laughs> and even though Comiskey had a capacity over 50 grand, the stadium was very intimate. It had amazing sight lines and only about a dozen rows of seats in the upper decks. And even though the intimacy and coziness of the crib was baked in, opposing batters would probably not, not call it cozy. It had uh, voluminous symmetrical walls that kept the ball in play. Uh, Lake Michigan and her legendary prevailing winds whipping through the yard. No baseball player in MLB history ever hit More than 100 home runs inside Comiskey Park. An astounding baseball fact when you consider the longevity and history of that baseball stadium. But the White Sox 
enjoyed a real home field advantage by traditionally building their team on a foundation based on speed, tenacity, line drive, gappers, and pitching. Uh, they've never been a team when they lived at Comiskey that was built on muscle-bound sluggers who would, uh, you know, anytime they had a slugger in that team, you could find that person usually complaining about, you know, 400-foot fly-outs. Comiskey Park was a dead ball era stadium that played like one. Well after the era was made irrelevant by the live ball, by the way. The White Sox are one of the original eight American League teams. In 1900, the fledgling American League requested a franchise in Chicago. The new White Sox, they chose the uh, Chicago Cricket Club on 39th Street and Princeton Avenue as their original base of operations. On April 24th, 1901, the Indians and the White Sox both make their Major League Baseball debut as Chicago beat up Cleveland 8-2. And they renamed the cricket club to South Side Park 2. And it had a 15,000 fan capacity. In 1906, there are still tenants at South Side Park 2 when the Hitless Wonder Sox beat the crosstown rival Cubs for the chip. It is then that Comiskey begins to think that a new stadium would breathe a whole new life into his ball club. He had no room to expand on his current 15,000-seat crib. And when the grandstand caught fire in 1909, the old Roman, Charles Comiskey, was fully convinced that ball yard made of concrete and steel would be his best course of action for the White Sox future stadium plans. So, between 1909 and 1923, uh, new urban, mainly uh, 14 of them, 14 of these mainly steel structured ball yards are spawned across American cities. Crosley Field, Fenway Park, Tiger Stadium, each sired an infinite feel for the spirit of the past. As Bill Beck observed, and closed ballparks moved the game of baseball downtown. The first two baseball Xanadus to come to fruition were the two majestic Pennsylvania structures in Forbes Field and Shad Park. White Sox owner Charles Comiskey would visit both, and the old Roman had designs on his own vision for his ball club. He decided that he would move his team from Southside Park 2 to, adjust, to just a few blocks north when he acquired 15 acres of land owned by Chicago Mayor John Wentworth for $150,000. I think I should tell you that $150,000 in 1909 and has the purchasing power of $5.4 million in the 2023 economy. And to design this jewel box palace, Comiskey recruited George uh, Chicago architect Zachary Taylor Davis, who himself had served as an apprentice alongside the legendary Frank Lloyd Wright. He was now at the age of 40, and he was now settling into his, you know, his own prime here. Taylor Davis was already highly acclaimed for his work on Chicago churches, schools, courthouses, and he was up to the task of adding baseball stadium to his rising portfolio. 
he would then go on to design Wrigley Field, lend a hand in the conceptualizing of Yankee Stadium, as well as L.A.'s Wrigley Field, a former home of the franchise expansion team, the Los Angeles Angels. And check it out. Almost all these cribs I have covered and are in my Baltimore Cubs. I mean, almost all of them. I've covered Wrigley, Sean, Fenway, Crosley. I've even touched on L.A.'s Wrigley Field in our Home Run Derby show. I've also covered Zachary David, Taylor Davis, a few of those shows. So, all those shows are available wherever you listen to your pods, or you can visit my website, diamondsnakejake.podbean.com, to hear any and all of my shows. Now, the other half of the Comiskey Design team was former team ace pitcher Ed Walsh. In 1908, Ed Walsh puts up some of the most mind-bottling numbers as a starting pitcher that will, that will never be matched. That year, listen to this folks, he amasses 464 innings pitched and he won 40 fucking games. For the most part, Walsh didn't give a shit about Taylor Davis's architectural vision as long as it didn't violate his plan to keep the playing field as large as possible. The Joel Brock's crib was gridded out between 34th and 35th Street, Portland Avenue, which is now South Shields Avenue, South Wentworth Avenue, which is now the Dan Ryan Expressway. And the White Sox broke ground February 15, 1919. 124 years ago. For luck, the team laid a green cornerstone on St. Patrick's Day down, and the cost of the stadium was $750,000, which is about $28.3 million in the 2023 economy. So, they broke ground in February. By July 1st, the stadium is ready to be open. Literally three and a half months, folks. And I love hearing how these old stadiums, these throwbacks were completed so quickly back in the day. And it makes me wonder why we can't do shit like that to this day. Well, I'm going to tell you why. There was no red tape, no politics, no bureaucracy. It just, shit just gets fucking done back in the days. 32,000 people showed up that day at the 28,000 seat crib. Taylor Davis and Walsh were both fans of Forbes Field, but for different reasons. Taylor loved the aesthetic, elegant appeal with her beautiful arches, and Walsh was a fan of, what else, the expansive outfield that would negate any hitter's ambition of dropping dong. Davis's exterior vision was a blend of various styles. His recognition and nod towards Forbes was also an indirect ode to the Roman Colosseum with its curves and its arches. Hundreds of automobiles descended onto the new stadium in the debut opener. Four military units marched into the historic building uh, that from day one was hailed as the premier ballpark in the United States. Team Ace and Comiskey Park consultant Ed Walsh would fall 2 to nothing in that opener, which proved to be just the beginning of his schizophrenic 1919 season when he would lose 20 games. But a league-low ERA of 127. Uh, let me explain that to you again. Uh, the phone rang. Sorry about that. So, that first year, he would fall in the opener, tune it up, and, um, and he would lose 20 games. But 
he had a league low ERA of 1.27. A Southside diverse combination of Catholic, Irish, and Eastern European immigrants packed the crib to root for the light-hitting AL underdogs. The new home, it double-decked the first and third base lines while it was trimmed to one tier along the left and right field wall. Its 363-feet foul lines stretched out to 382 feet in the power alleys and 420 feet to dead center. And, of course, you know, these dimensions, they're going to cause a lot of batters to mutter expletives to themselves after launching harmless pop-outs to the outfielder. In May of 1917, the White Sox were no-hit twice in one month. Some of Davis's more ambitious plans were vetoed by Comiskey, who had, you know, this miserly reputation of playing it cheap. A more ornate facade was pared down, a proposed third deck was overruled, and external landscaping, including a proposed fountain behind the first base portion of the structure, it never made it past the drawing stages. Davis also had visions of cantilevering the second deck, but Comiskey balked when he saw that final price tag, which led to the reality that some of the lower bowl fans would have to contend with obstructive views behind concrete supporting posts. Once the blueprints were approved by the old Roman, construction on the structure was uh, fast and furious. As I mentioned it was completed within five months, a most monumental achievement when you consider that a month after laying, uh, you know, after breaking ground, the green cornerstone and laying down that green cornerstone on St. Patty's Day, the steelworkers went on strike for five fucking weeks. So think about that. Five months and five weeks of that, the steelworkers were on strike. When completed, the ballpark was christened. White Sox Park for its first three years before attaching Commie's name to it. Opening day went off with a bang as a crowd of in excess of 30,000 people showed up. League presidents and numerous team owners attended to see a glimpse of the future as well as Pat Comiskey on his back for a job well done. Not showing up that debut opener <laughs> was the always listless White Sox offense as Ed Walsh's idea of a pitcher-friendly park was a little too much of a good thing as he lost his pitching duel to Barney Pelty and the St. Louis Browns. Two to nothing. And while those bats stayed in the freezer for that stadium debut, the field itself was fire. I mean, literally. According to a Chicago Examiner article that I unraveled, the grass near the Browns' dugout had suddenly erupted in flames. And nearby players had to beat the fire out with towels, beats, and, you know, uh, towels, bats, and, and cleat stomps. No explanation was ever given for the unwelcome bit of spontaneous combustion. But, yeah, I thought that was crazy. Uh, the ground just caught on fire. By the visiting dugout on opening day. That's crazy. Low scoring and poor hitting would be the role of the day for the White Sox at Comiskey when it opened. In fact, the opposing team, it didn't really fare much better as the Sox and their adversaries, they batted a mere 203 combined that first half season, which 
Uh, there was only three home runs in a departing year. All three of those came in the ground roll variety as each time the ball bounced through the iron rod gates outside the, the, uh, the outfield confines, positioned near the foul pole, and that connected with the bleachers with a single-way grandstand down the line. The stadium highlight that inaugural year was a 16-inning pitching duel between Walsh and Philadelphia A's hurler Jack Coombs. Coombs would go on to strike out 16 pale hosers that day, a ballpark record that would stand until 1976 when Nolan Ryan matched that 16 strikeout number, but he did it in nine innings pitched. Of the first 105 home runs hit inside Comiskey in her first decade of use, 62 of them were of the inside park variety to officially close out the dead ball era. While the crib didn't house much offense, Comiskey Park itself was a hit. The Southside fans flocked to a facility anchored by covered single-deck grandstands down the foul lines and bleachers, separated by a gigantic white wall behind center field, partially covered by ads and scoreboards. I think there was like a Lawson's clock out there too, if I'm not mistaken. And even though the White Sox played below 500 their first seven seasons in Comiskey Park, they led the league in four of those years in total attendance. Because of the Southside spectacle, the park would host the World Series from 1917 to 1919, where the White Sox would participate in two of those. In 1918, the Cubs decided to use the larger Comiskey to host the AL champion Red Sox in the World Series, which they would lose in six games. The Northsiders didn't sell out any of their three World Series home games that year, as Cubs fans, I guess, you know, they just couldn't bear to go to a home game in Comiskey Park. The new stadium, it sparked a birth to the surrounding neighborhoods, real estate prizes, Prices rose dramatically during the first five years, and a Southside institution was established with the opening of McCutty's Tavern, which was originally built to service those building the stadium. Once the stadium was complete, it became the de facto meeting place for fans, for generations of White Sox loyalists, and it wasn't unusual to even catch a player or a coach there after the game. One of the tavern's most Frequented visitors was Yankee Slugger and West Baltimore badass Babe Ruth himself, who had a penchant for making Comiskey Park his bitch. He made it look small. He would hit 45 home career home runs in 179 games at the old bar y- ball yard, including the first to ever clear the tall center field wheel- wall that I just told you about in 1922. A bat with the Bambino signature and remained on display at McCutty's Tavern until the bar was forcibly torn down in 1988 to make way for the lower third base side concourse at what is now Guaranteed Rate Park. Another stadium that I've covered in my vault of archives there. And for those with social connection to Charles Comiskey and the elites of his ilk, there was an appealing alternative to McCutty's Tavern called The Bards Room, 
which was an upscale option located under the grandstand where gentlemen of note would gather, smoke cigars, drink spirits, converse on the topics of the day from sex to politics to baseball. It had the feel of a Midwestern cabin with its walls paneled in mahogany, a brick fireplace, and uh, taxidermic deer heads mounted on the wall. The White Sox would occasionally open the room to the media, and eventually the scribes took over the room after Kami and his friends had passed on. In 1959... Uh, owner Bill Beck, upon buying the team, he just could not resist the allure of turning it into his private office, so that's what he did. Few adjustments, if any, were made to the ballpark in the early years. The backstop, which was 98 feet behind first base, was eventually moved to within 82 when additional box seats were added behind home plate. The bleachers were also expanded, but With the sonic boom of popularity in baseball during the 1920s, the game was evolving into a more power and run production style. Comiskey Park became part of an evolutionary evolutionary uh, movement that saw jewel box steel and construction stadiums going through major expansion. The expansion of Comiskey Park it had very little to do with the team's performance on the field. The team itself was struggling under the weight of the 1919 Black Sox scandal. It really had more to do with the mostly illicit but booming Chicago economy that spurred on by you know heavy bootlegged kings like Daniel Banyan, Johnny Torrio, and of course, mob rock star Al Capone. Zachary Davis... Taylor once again oversaw the architectural expansion work on the park when he nearly doubled the capacity to 52,000 seats. In fact, an additional 2,000 seats didn't make the cut as they were eliminated due to building code uh, violations. So, the double-deck grandstand and now nearly encircles the whole stadium except for a little notch behind center field to be uh, uh, to complete to be able to complete that right foot expansion, more land had to be acquired. The seats and aisles were widened. Hand-operated scoreboards were mounted on outfield walls and left and right fields, which were now 10 feet tall, and the center field wall apexed at 20 feet high. The flagpole in center field was in play, and it was right in front of the wall. The double decking of the grandstand unfortunately cut off the view of downtown Chicago, but AL Sluggers and the new live balls now had a roof for a target. The Sporting News counted 44 times in the history of Comiskey where a player either hit the roof or cleared it in its history. The first one to accomplish the feat was the babe, of course, but there is controversy over the furthest ball that was ever hit there. Many consider the Jimmy Fox blast in 1920 to be the furthest, but there is no measurement to back that up. In 1955, Mickey Mantle also cleared the left field room for the ball that smashed a window of a parked car on 25th Street. The shot was measured at 550 feet. And in 1965, Dave Nicholson, who just a year earlier 
set the Major League Baseball record for uh, whips with 175, which, by the way, has been easily broken many times over since then. He connected on a dog that measured 573 feet. But there's always been a debate over whether the ball cleared the roof or hit it in any way. And if the measurement was based on where the ball landed or its final place of rest after rolling. With the expansion of the seats came expansion to the field. The 1927 configuration was as large as the stadium would ever get. The differences, uh, the distances down the foul fair lines, held uh, held steady from 363 to 365 feet. The power alleys had some shrinkage from 382 to 375. But the trip out to center field it required two bus transfers and a quick Uber trip to an exhaustive. 455 feet, and now that the configuration of the field was basically a square with a slight diagonal bite taken out of the center field corner. Right center field, left center field became even longer at roughly 460 feet. Live ball be damned. Kami would sit in his box and basically challenge anyone not named Ruth box or man on the Congress wall, let alone go over that roof. Now, there are times when the White Sox did have a change of heart with the cavernous dimensions, usually when they felt it would play to their advantage. In 1933, when the Southsiders signed future Hall of Famer Al Simmons, who averaged 32 home runs in his previous four seasons with the A's, but he would just hit 14 in his first season in the Windy City, and he blamed it on Comiskey Park's dimensions, even though he hit seven home runs on the road as well as seven, you know, in the south side crib here. He warned the club he would be a no-show in spring training unless they moved the fences in. In response, the Sox moved the play closer to the walls by 14 feet. It only helped in that a diminishing Simmons would hit more uh, Comiskey home runs the next year, but it was only a mask for his overall lack of returns in the power department, you know, as he's starting to age out here. Even worse, the White Sox didn't benefit one iota in the standings by acquiescing to Simmons and his demands. As the team finished under 500 in all three of his seasons in Chicago before they sent him off to Detroit. As soon as he was jettisoned out, the White Sox moved the infield back to pre-Simmons dimensions. In 1949, the most radical dimension altering occurred in Comiskey Park. First year GM Frank Lane, after watching the Moribound Sox lose 101 games the year before, he wanted to shake things up for the hitless blunders. He ordered the ballpark workers to instill a canvas-covered fence rising just 5 feet in front of the walls, cutting down the dimensions by 15 to 20 feet in some areas. Unfortunately, the Sox began to realize that, you know, these new dimensions were positively impacting the opposing teams more than their own. When the Washington Senators came to town, hardly a powerful NL team, by the way, and they smashed seven bombs in an early May game. And Lane quickly put the kibash on the strategy, and he had the campus removed. A decision that annoyed AL officials so much that they established a rule in the offseason forbidding teams from altering outfield dimensions midway through a season.
they would repeat the strategy in 1969, which had the same results as bad White Sox teams were bludgeoned to a pulp for two years before management admitted it was a bad decision. Despite all the fence adjusting throughout the years, the park was always consistent with beautiful sight lines. Unlike many of the jewel box cribs of this era, Comiskey didn't have odd quirky angles. The plot was basically a perfect square. Through all of her iterations, uh, iterations of differing dimensions with the outfield, Comiskey always maintained her perfect symmetry. The left, se- the left side of the field was always a mirror image of the right. The prevailing opinion of most credible baseball historians is that Comiskey was the first symmetrical baseball stadium in history, and it remained that way to her last day standing. The first decade of Comiskey, Charles Comiskey, was one of the most powerful owners in the fraternity. The second most powerful man in the AL behind only uh, President Ben Johnson. However, after the Black Sox scandal, his wife would pass only two years later, and it literally broke Charles Comiskey. In 1931, after 11 seasons of placing no higher than fifth in an eight-team American League, Charles Comiskey dies. His son, Lou Comiskey, would take over duties, and the club was relatively competitive by the 1930s. In late June 1939, lights were installed, but Louie never got to see a night game as he would die of heart disease just weeks before his 52nd birthday. Now, Lou bequeathed the White Sox to the First National Bank of Chicago with the idea that the bank would pass the team on to his wife, Grace, who in turn would pass it on to their son, Chuck, when he turned 35 years old in 1960. But... The bank did not see the White Sox as a wise investment. They also didn't believe that Grace had the masculinity for the job, and they decided to sell shares to outside interests. Grace says, you know, fuck this. She sues the bank, and after a year-long courtroom legal battle, she ultimately regained control of the club. She was the second female owner in MLB history, after only Helen Britton, had assumed the presidency of the St. Louis Cardinals in 1911. Grace Comiskey oversaw modest upgrades, including installation of newer and wider seats, increased concession stands, an upgraded press box, and more toilets. The White Sox were in the early stage of a $500,000 renovation project when Grace would die in 1956. $500,000 $500,000 in 1956 and has the purchasing power of around $4.5 million in today's busted 2023 economy. Their son Chuck's hope of team ownership were dashed when it was re- revealed that his mother, Grace, had only left Chuck 46% controlling interest, while the rest went to his sister Dorothy who was married to former Sox pitcher Jimmy Rigney, who by now had a job in the White Sox front office. Uh, This pissed off Chuck, who would spend the next two years trying to wrest control of the team from his sister. Finally, Dorothy, who is just sick of this whole affair, tells her brother, fine, dude, you can fucking have it. I'm tired of this horse shit. What are you going to give me for it? And Chuck, believing he will be the lone bidder, he comes back with a low-ball, paltry offer, 
that insults his, insults his sister so much, she, she sells her interest to Bill Beck in a real butterfly effect moment. And think about it, if Chuck does right by his sister, the baseball universe may have never ex- been exposed to the brilliant promotional mind of the great Bill Beck. Although, you know, he was the owner of other teams, but, you know, he took it to a whole other level when he was in Chicago. Beck had found success as an Indians manager and failure as the owner of the Browns. He was already known as the adventurous promotional feller who loved to push the envelope to the edge. At this time, he is best known for sending 3.7-inch Eddie Goodell to the plate in a game in 1951. Those who believed Beck would mellow after taking over the Southsiders were in for a loud, rude awakening. Vic still had plenty of cards to play hitting up his sleeve. He once gave away a 229-pound block of ice as a president as a pre, as a prize to a fan on a hot Chicago summer day. When Vic couldn't coax President Kennedy to attend a Sox game, he scoured the phone books to find a Chicago native with the same name to come out and throw the first pitch. By the way, kids. Uh, phone books are these things that used to get left on your porch every year, and it literally had the name and phone number of every registered name in your state. It was huge. It was bigger than, like, you know, the S section of the encyclopedia. Ah, oh, shit. Okay, kids. Encyclopedias were these books we used to use before Google and Wikipedia to get information about various topics. God damn it. Okay, a book are these things that we read instead of computers back in the day. You got it? We all caught up? All right. Where was I? Oh, yeah. Bill Beck and his crazy promos. Before another game, he had a helicopter land on the uh, the pitcher's mound where four Martians, and I'm saying that with bunny ears, including Eddie Goodell, leapt from out the copter, demanding the White Sox fans take them to their leader, Beck gave the ballpark a jarring renovation by painting the brick red edifice completely white while placing a picnic area underneath the left field bleachers that would allow fans to eat and watch the game. But his greatest innovation for the South Side Ball Yard was his exploding scoreboard. By 1951, the White Sox have erected the largest scoreboard on the planet. It's placed in the open space behind the center field wall. It was adorned in advertising, and it made no noise. But Bill Beck would change that. And you heard his clip at the beginning of the show. He got the idea watching his friend play a pinball game that was abuzz with flashing lights and noises. And Vic thought to himself, why not do this to a scoreboard? So he spent $30,000, uh, I'm sorry, $300,000 to revamp the board. By the way, Three hundred thousand dollars, nineteen sixty. It's worth four point two million dollars in twenty twenty three. Curious fans and players had no idea what to sp- to expect, but on May twentieth, nineteen sixty, Ted Klazowski hits a shot, and boom! For the next thirty seconds, the scoreboard went absolutely nuts. The pinwheel spun, fireworks shot from out the top, and a variety of loud, delightful whistles and sounds emanated from the center field scoreboard, and so it went. Every time a White Sox player dropped dong, 
the fantastic sounds and sights would, would, would repeat itself from the scoreboard beyond center field. And the scoreboard was multifaceted. It would shriek if an opposing pitcher took too long between pitches. It had a groan. When opposing sluggers went yard. And of course, it kept the score. It also had a feature that could determine the speed and type of pitch being thrown. Something that would have been well ahead of its time had that feature only been activated. Jimmy Dice threatened to protest the scoreboard because of his uh, the excessive noise that startled he and his fucking teammates. Indians outfielder Jim Pearsall, he caught a baseball's biggest joke. After catching a fly ball at Comiskey one day to end the inning, he spun around and fired the baseball at it. The Yankees had a clever response when Cleet Boyer dropped dong. They lined up in front of the dugout with sparklers that cost only 18 cents compared to the $23,000 spent by the White Sox for every home team home run hit. The sideshow magic seemed to work as the Sox were great in the 1950s, just not good enough to supplant the dynastic Yankees. In 1959, though, Vicks first as an owner. The Sox win their first AL pennant since 1919 and their last at Comiskey Park. Even though the Go-Go Sox of 1959 would lose to the Dodgers in the World Series, Chicago would ride the coattails of the years uh, before success and the exploding scoreboard and set the standard for all attendance in baseball for the first time since 1917. And that would also be their last time at Comiskey. Just when it seemed Vic was back on top of the baseball universe, he had to walk away and sell the team. He had a brain tumor, bad knees. He was fight, he hurt while fighting in World War II. Beck was nice enough to keep Chuck Comiskey in a front office position, even though he routinely schemed hostile takeover after hostile takeover. He tried one last time to buy the franchise, but he was rebuffed once more by Beck, and he finally gave up. At long last, the Comiskey connection to the franchise was in name only. And even that would change when new owner Arthur Allen officially renamed the yard White Sox Park, although many fans and reporters, they continued to call her Comiskey Park. Allen, a local businessman, made an honest attempt to spruce up Comiskey in the beginning. He oversaw much-needed upgrades in the clubhouse and moved the visitors' clubhouse behind the visitors' dugout, but mostly... His reign and that of his uh, brother John, who took over in 1969, it's really just marred with empty promises. A plan to build an exclusive club called the Coach of the Nine and Rightfield Bleachers and never got past the drawing board, nor did they plan for uh, a retractable roof in 1965. In 1968, Allen was all in on a proposed sports complex that would be built above the railroad tracks just north of Comiskey as a home to all of the Chicago sports team. But one by one, the other Chicago teams, they soured on this concept. And Mayor Richard Daly, who was an early advocate for the idea, he fell off his wall as well. After flirting with moving to Milwaukee, the White Sox and Allens find the financially challenged team is a rotting franchise. The Pirates and Phillies 
closed out Forbes Field inside Park for Good in 1971. That made Comiskey the oldest uh, crib in the biz. The Allens began cutting costs wherever they could. In 1969, the Sox installed artificial turf in the infield and kept the natural grass in the outfield. The exploding scoreboard was retired, and the Allens proved that they did not have the baseball promotional acumen of Bill Beck. Meanwhile, Bill Beck, he's watching the Southsiders crumble from the sidelines while his health recuperates. He revised the team from John Allen, who was close to selling to a Seattle group. He restores the Comiskey Park name. He burns the infield turf to a crisp. He reboots the exploding scoreboard. And he installs shower heads in the bleachers to cool off fans on a hot day. Beck would keep two, hold- two holdovers from the Allen era. Play-by-play broadcaster Harry Carey, who joined the Sox in 1971 and would eventually bolt to the Cubs during the mid-80s. And now Nancy Faust, the major's first female organist who began playing Comiskey in 1970. And she would taunt visiting teams who were on the brink of losing with the melodic sounds of Sha-da-da-da, hey-hey-hey, goodbye. With the joyous Sox fans singing along, And that would start a sports tradition that can be heard at sporting events pretty much around the world today. Promotionally, Beck reached new levels of audaciousness a few times in 1976 when he made the team wear shorts to go with tops that had collars. And one of the oddest uniforms ever to be displayed in the game. But Vic truly, uh, to his game, he took it to a, a whole nother infamous level when he kicked off Disco Demolition Night in 1979. And that is an event I broke down in detail already on my Disco Demolition show from last year. If you haven't heard that one, I highly recommend you check it out. It is honestly in my personal top 10 favorites. It might be in my top five. And you can find it on all podcast platforms or at my website, diamondsnakejake.podbean.com. As crazy as Disco Demolition was, and it was, it was hardly the only adventure to put uh, Comiskey in peril during the 70s. A 1976 rock festival held before a packed house on a hot day almost turned tragic when some spectators in the upper deck began setting off fireworks and that uh, set the seats on fire. Thick plastic black smoke it wafted from the upper bowl while oblivious fans are dancing to Jeff Beck's performance on stage. The Chicago Fire Department was called. They quickly put the fire out as the upper deck saw $10,000 in damages and 13 people were treated for smoke inhalation. Between the rock festival and disco demolition, the old ballpark sustained a lot of damage both in the stands and on the field. When Red Sox right fielder Dewey Evans, Dwight Evans, pulled a hamstring on the patchy outfield, he threatened to sue the White Sox. And the truth is, disco demolition and shorts aside, Vic's second tenure was ill-timed, if anything. He was a standout in an earlier generation because his promotions always impacted positively the bottom line. But... The money was now getting much bigger 
as we know now. And, you know, this is a period of time after the crumbling of the reserve clause and the dawn of the free agency era. And Beck, he just didn't have the financial backbone to compete in the new era. So he sold the club to Jay Reinsdorf in 1981, who still to this day sits on the South Side baseball throne. Jerry oozed and... Again, I'm using Dr. Evil Bunny here, ears here. He oozed corporate as a successful real estate magnet. Reinsdorf dumped $14 million into renovating and updating Comiskey once he bought it. Those upgrades included the addition of 27 suites in the upper deck. At one time, he was committed to a full-scale renovation of the old bar- ballpark, but he determined that the data showed the investment would be a financial loser. Even the White Sox players openly questioned, you know, why would Mr. Reinsdorf even consider such an undertaking? Ozzie Guillen, the talented young shortstop in 1989, he told Sporting News Magazine that Comiskey was an awful place. When prospects come up, they look around in shock and say, uh, this is the major leagues. Everything is small and old style. And Reinsdorf agreed. And as early as 1985, he begins testing the waters and formulating a plan for a new crib. And folks, I told you all about the fascinating story of how the narcissistic Jerry threatens the city officials and the White Sox fans uh, by saying unless state legislature approves his plan for a new stadium, he'd be transplanting this uh, American League Institution White Sox organization to uh, St. Petersburg, Florida, where they had a cool indoor stadium with crazy catwalks in the ceiling, and they probably changed their name to something like, oh, yeah, I don't know, the Rays or something. I also told you already the amazing story of how state legislators literally turned back time and the clock to avoid a midnight deadline to pay Reinsdorf's ransom. That's in the Guaranteed Rate Park Shell. Just an amazing chain of events that precipitated the end of this memorable throwback joint. Comiskey's 81st and final season was a very memorable one for the conflicted Southside baseball fans. Closer Bobby Thigpen, he set an MLB record at the time for saves in a season. That's since been broken. That was uh, 57. Future Hall of Famer Carlton Fisk set the career home run bar with 351. A young, lumbering phenom named Frank Thomas made the show late in that season. He had 342 in 25 games, signaling the dawn of a new era. In a game fitting of their hitless blunder profile, they won a 4-0 game over Andy Hawkins and the Yankees on zero hits. The team finished that last season 94-68, and 68, which was a 25-win uptick over the 1989 team, and it surpassed the 2 million mark in attendance for only the third time in its fabled history. When the, White so- when the fans packed that final game of Comiskey on September 30th, 1990, White Sox broadcaster Ken Harrelson, he wore a Black Sox cap, Minnie Minoso, Sox legend from the 50s. He carried the final scoreboard to the uh, scorecard to the ump. He gave them the park's final ground rules. And among the Chicago dignitaries present was Chuck Comiskey, the man who never got the chance to preserve his grandfather's family's legacy. 
after the 2-1 White Sox victory over the Mariners, Reinsdorf made sure that the old ballpark would never be forgotten. He offered a seat to every season ticket holder who had re-upped for the new stadium being built in the looming Comiskey Park shadow. As the bittersweet fans walked out saying goodbye to baseball's first palace, Nancy Faust was begging out Olin Zion on the stadium organ. And speaking of shadows, the White Sox have always lived in the shadow of their crosstown rival Cubs. Comiskey was the Rodney Dangerfield of Chicago Baseball Stadium. It, it, it get no respect. People always opine wistfully about Wrigley, Fenway, Abbott's, even Tiger Stadium has shown more reverence than Comiskey. It stood almost lost amid the factories and stockyards, but it provided the best baseball it could, which was one pennant and no championship in the Sox's final 73 years as a tenant. Singer Joni Mitchell sang, They paved paradise to put a parking lot a 75,000-car parking lot replaced Comiskey Park. Today, there is an outline plate and batting box in the lot to remind the Southeast of a distant night under a cloudless sky with the moon over 35th and Shields. In some parts of South Chicago, baseball still has a 1959 state of mind. And boys and girls, that is the story of Comiskey Park. Thank you for joining me this week. I hope you enjoyed listening as much as I enjoyed telling to you. Uh, I'll try to be better next week for sure. Backwards K Pod is available on all platforms, wherever you listen to your pods, or you can visit my website, diamondsnakejake.podbean.com to hear this show or any of the other shows in my vault of expanding archives. You can find the show's Twitter page at back underscore K underscore podcast. My personal handle is at jrobbie1. That's J-R-O-B-B-I-E and the number one. The show's Instagram and YouTube channel is backwards K-Pod. You can always find me chilling with my dysfunctional family of C-Mans at the private Facebook group page, the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network. Like I said before, I would never charge you for the content here at BKP, but if you can leave me a review on my performance, I would greatly appreciate it. Stars and superlatives, baby. Hook a brother up. And with the Comiskey Park story getting smaller in my rear view mirror, I now turn my attention to next week's topic, when I will cover those amazing 1969 New York Mets. But look, that's another story for another pod here at Backwards K-Pod, where we collect ballplayers and their stories. Parents, if you see your kids sitting on the couch like a board AF, by all means, take him or her outside and play a game of catch. Thank you all for coming out. God bless and win the day. And like my boy Shay Hillenbrand told me in our one-on-one joust a few months ago, you go to hell, Andy Pettit. See you next week, C-Med Freaks. Peace.